This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. This week, a tale of a charming villain motivated by money and ego to murder. I'm very pleased to introduce Gordon Lowe. He was a solicitor in London for 10 years and owned his own law practice after that until his retirement when he began writing full-time. He's written multiple true crime nonfiction books, including, of course, the one he's here to talk about. It is called The Acid Bath Murders, The Trials and Liquidations of John George Haig. Thank you so much for coming on. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure, Eric. Thank you very much for, um, for having me. Certainly. So what is it about this case? that first intrigued you? What what made you want to write a book about it? Well, I think um, it, it's, a, it's an odd life, actually, as a true-life crime author, in finding subjects that um, haven't been much written about. <laughs> because, of course, a, a lot of the very famous true crimers, um, and I'm sure this is the same in, in the States as it is here, have usually been written about. And... Um, Publishers are not so keen for that unless it's a completely new angle. Um, so you have to be a little bit careful and try to find a subject that, A, interests you. And, uh, John Haig certainly did that um, as, as a um, multiple murderer, serial murderer. But there hadn't been a lot written about him. And um, this is one reason why I chose him, a good subject without a vast library of books about him. And so I, I thought uh, he was my man. Right, yeah. So this story is set in post-World War II Great Britain. Would you set the scene for us? What was life like for the average Brit in the late 1940s? Very much, very much post-war Britain. Uh, not much money around. Uh, most of this was set in London or nearby, so a lot of bomb sites still, business still not back on its feet. Uh, people on the whole not well off. 
unless there was some family money uh, stored up, which probably applies to our uh, first few victims, actually, uh, of Hague. So a big gap between the poor who were struggling after the war had often been involved in fighting for the war, for the army or whatever, and the moneyed classes who were pretty well safe and uh, cared for, and uh, which led us, uh, of course, to our first scene um, that I think we're going to discuss for uh, Olive Duran Deacon in a rather well-off hotel, which in effect was a care home for the rich. So I think um, that's where we started. But London, London life trying to struggle back to its feet and put itself back in the picture after the, a, a devastating war. So your book opens with the tragic story of Olive Durand Deacon. Would you tell us about her and how she found herself in such unfortunate circumstances? Certainly. Um, an interesting character. She, Olive was about 60 years old. She was a widow. Her husband had been quite a war figure. He'd received the British Military Cross, one of the highest awards for bravery. Um, he died, and so at the age of 60, she was on her own, heading towards her dotage, as it were, and as a care home, what we probably call a care home these days, she'd found the Onslow Court Hotel, which is in a very well-to-do area of London in Queen's Gate in South Kensington, Many of your listeners will will know it quite near, for example, the Science Museum and the Natural History Museum in central London, and installed herself there. Uh, it was not a cheap hotel. She had one of the best rooms on the uh, first floor. And th th the other thing, which we'll return to in a, in a moment, but most of the other residents were another 20 years older. Many were in their 80s uh, for that reason. It was for the elderly, really, to see out the rest of their lives uh, in some comfort, uh, which made John Haig uh, something of a, a, an exception because he was only 40 years old. So a comfortable hotel. It's still there, incidentally, <laughs> if anyone wants to pop in there. It's now known as the Kensington Hotel. And this is where... Uh, both she and Haig met as fe fellow um, customers of the hotel. And she had a, a very interesting life herself. She had been involved in her younger years in the suffragette movement. And even at age 69, she was still trying things. She belonged to organizations. She had interesting business ideas, right? Very much so. She was a bright woman. As you say, she'd been involved in the British suffragette movement quite violently too. And in fact, on one occasion, she threw a brick through a window and was arrested and spent a few hours in a cell. That's not in any way to suggest she was a criminal because she wasn't. But this is what she'd come from, a political and a privileged uh, background, but uh, no layabout uh, at all. She She was using her time to go to classes, to read, to go to concerts. She was only down the row from the um, Royal Albert Hall, uh, which she'd visit frequently. 
So um, it was set up to uh, have a, an active but productive life in a, her retirement. And in fact, this was one of the things that engaged her with Haig from the very start. She had this idea that she had a bit of a talent for being a businesswoman. And in those post-war years, buying fashionable clothes or products was not easy. In fact, it was very, very difficult for obvious reasons. Um, and so she had this idea of possibly making plastic fingernails. She'd already had a few. She had a box full of them up in her room. And she thought, well, possibly I could uh, manufacture these uh, with the help. And John Haig seemed perfect because no one knew exactly what he did, but he seemed to be some light, simple engineer. And he'd uh, said a few times in the hotel that he had a rather nice factory down in a, a place called Crawley, which is now near Gatwick Airport. And uh, she said, well, look, John, um, you know, you're, you're an inventor, you're, you're an engineer, you're a bright man. What about manufacturing these and um, perhaps making, um, finding a little market for them? John found this rather interesting for uh, very different reasons because he saw here as possibly someone who was a little naive and a little innocent, who was extremely well off and who might, as it were, be added to his portfolio of victims. So Haig was living at this hotel. Uh, he was getting along with the women living there alongside him. And he was someone who enjoyed the finer things in life, right? But he didn't have the financial wherewithal to pay for his expensive tastes. John Haig was, in fact, broke. Um, he lived, as you point out, the uh, the good life. He had smart suits cut in uh, Savile Row in London, uh, the most expensive place you could um, ha have a suit made for you. Um, he had a nice car, an old Alvis, an old British Alvis car, no, no longer made. He had regular haircuts down in Victoria, uh, expensive shoes, um, and appeared to go out to the best places. He would go up to concerts at the Albert Hall. He would do this and, and he would do that. Um, the truth was he was in debt and he owed money to his business partner. He owed money to, uh, he had gambling debts. He owed money to the bank uh, and uh, he was also owing two months rent uh, to the hotel itself, which, which wasn't cheap. And in fact, staff or the cashier from the hotel was starting at last to come up to his room, knock on the door and say, Mr. Haig, this can't go on. You now owe two months rent. Uh, when you are going to pay up? To which he said, oh, no problem. You know, just give me a week or two. Well, of course, it was a problem because he had no money. And he, could, he couldn't move because he wouldn't be able to put a deposit down anywhere or uh, go to another hotel. Um, so he was stuck. So he had to think how he was going to make some money. And the way he thought of doing this was to cash in on people like Mrs. Joran Deacon, whom he knew was well off. She wore lovely jewellery, which she wore day and night. She had the most beautiful coat, Persian lamb coat. And in fact, what he did then was to 
suggest to her and endorse her idea of um, making these wretched plastic uh, nails. And he said, look, the way we do this is, uh, Olive, you must come down to the factory, as he called it, in Crawley, uh, meet my business partner, have a look at a few prototypes that we might use for you. And uh, one Friday morning, as he's having breakfast opposite her, he says, today's the day, Olive, I'm going to take you down there. Uh, we'll have some lunch. We'll have a, a look around the area. But I will show you my workshop and I'll show you the prototypes uh, that we've got. So he bundles her into the car. They drive down to Crawley, say an hour and a half or so. They use the uh, hotel in the high street at Crawley to use the bathroom there. And then he takes her around the corner to the uh, factory. Well, the factory turns out to be not exactly a factory. It is an, it, it, it is an earthenware workshop which is musty, it's damp, it's ill-lit, it smells, it's got a rough uh, work table with a few towels lying around, a few uh, shreds of flex wire hanging from the walls. And, of course, uh, poor Olive is slightly surprised by it. It doesn't quite live up to the uh, image that John has been producing. And uh, he then takes Olive over to the work table and says, well, look, here are, uh, these are the prototypes I'm thinking about. He produces two plastic red sheets, which frankly could have come and be used for anything, and says, look, have a look at these. See if you like the colour and the quality, and we'll take it from there. And as Olive bends over the work table, he reaches into a hat box, which has been sitting on the floor, uh, produces a revolver unseen to her, and shoots Olive in the back of the head. Yeah, and, and that kills her instantly, correct? That kills her instantly. She's 14 stone. She's a large lady. She slumps uh, onto the work face and then onto the floor. Uh, the first thing um, John does is take all her jewellery off her. He knows exactly what he's doing rings, crucifix brooch around her neck and puts that to one side. So that, if you like, uh, uh, is safe for the moment, at least with John. He then has to think quickly about how he's going to handle all this. Now, he's already told his business partner, the other side of town, that he's bringing a prospective customer down to look at these uh, plastic sheets. He then, leaving Olive, of course, there in the uh, workshop, he drives over to the other side of town to tell his business partner she never turned up. Um, he goes back to the workshop and then starts the arduous work of bundling Olive's body into a drum if you like, the shape of an old oil drum that is bought specifically for this purpose. He trusses her up like a turkey for Thanksgiving or for Christmas. And he spends two hours in this operation. It is arduous. It takes all his strength. He's only a small man, but manages to get the body into the oil drum. He's exhausted at the end of that. He uh, manages to get the oil drum up on its end, uh, on the floor. 
And at this stage, and this is a mark of uh, the sort of man we're up against, he pops out of the uh, out of the workshop into the high street, into the local cafe for a cup of tea and a fried egg on toast. And uh, we know which cafe it was, and we know the owner said, oh, well, John Haig, he, he knows a bit, you know, John's coming for tea. He said, oh, he's in a good mood that day. We had a good chat about him getting back to London and business generally. And halfway through this, of course, he doesn't tell the proprietor, but John uh, realises that he hasn't actually locked the door to the workshop. So it, the first time he sort of lost his cool about this, he quickly finishes his tea and beetles back to the uh, workshop to find, in fact, he hadn't locked it. But fortunately, there's no other, no, none of his uh, workmates or any other tenants are in the yard. No one has been in there and he's safe. Anyway, so he goes into the workshop, locks the door this time. And then in a macabre scene, which is something out of a Hitchcock movie, if you think about it, he then dons industrial gloves, long, long sleeve industrial gloves, a rubber apron, rubber boots, and a gas mask, because he's now going to come into close contact with sulfuric acid. He has three industrial containers, carboys as, as they were known, of sulf industrial sulfuric acid, which he's brought in before. And he siphons these using a crude stirrup pump to pump the acid into the drum in which poor Mrs. Duran Deacon is, is, is trussed up. Uh, it's quite a dangerous operation, actually, as you can imagine, with sulfuric acid, but he manages to do it, top up the drum, and that, for the moment, is all he's going to do. He knows that after about 24 to 48 hours that a body will dissolve in sulfuric acid to pretty well nothing, but it takes time. So he this time... Uh, uh, takes off his kit, he locks the door and uh, drives off back to London. But uh, the goal of the man, he manages to stop off in the high street again. And this time he doesn't visit the cafe. He goes into that hotel he first visited a few hours ago with uh, Mrs. Duran Deacon and has a rather nice uh, dinner there. Orders herself chicken and a bottle of wine. Again, apparently, according to the staff, he's cheerful, optimistic, passes the time of the evening with them, and then uh, drives back to London. Wow. So he also now has a number of items that he is eager to exchange for cash. So he starts making the rounds, trying to pawn off Mrs. Durand Deacon's belongings. That's exactly it. He's got a couple of days of comparative rest. He pops back to the workshop uh, every day to see how she is stewing. If I, I don't want to elaborate on these rather unpleasant circumstances, but um, he has to go back to see how she's cooking and whether you know the uh, gruel is thinning, as it were. Uh, the other thing he does, yes, is go off to a jeweller's that he's used before, a Mr. Buller, and manages straight away to sell Joran Deacon's watch for 10 quid. 
and then the rest of the jewellery to him. So that's set him up with a little cash. And he also decides to have her Persian lamb coat cleaned. There's no blood on it, but it did drop on the floor. She dropped to the floor herself, poor lady. But he simply wants it cleaned and looking as best as possible, knowing that he's going to try to sell it. So that goes into the cleaners. That's going to take or do a day or two to come back. The other thing he's got to do is to try to comfort everyone at the hotel because, of course, Mrs. Gerard Deacon has just disappeared. He can manage it for a few hours by saying, oh, she's probably gone off to relatives. But you, you see, she wasn't that sort of person. She was a very particular person. She had a good friend at the hotel, Mrs. Constant Lane, in her 80s. And Mrs. Lane was getting more and more worried. And in the end, they um, asked one of the hotel maids to unlock Olive's door, number 115 in the hotel. And they find that she hasn't spent a night there. Her nightdress is still out and the bed turned down. So something has to be done. And um, Haig, thinking on his feet as usual, uh, is trying to ingratiate himself with Mrs. Lay because there's going to be trouble there otherwise. So he says, Constance, uh, this is extremely worrying. You're going to report this to the police, quite right, but I insist on taking you myself. We'll go up to Chelsea Police Station. I shall drive you up and make sure that um, uh, we, we manage to see the police. So with this sort of gall, that's exactly what he does. But this is the start of Haig's downfall, really. He's overplaying it. And really, if he hadn't done that, probably things would have been a little easier for her because he makes Sergeant Maud Lamborn there in, in the station a bit suspicious. What is this rather smart, urbane man doing here in his fancy suits and his lovely haircut? Uh, a man of 40 years age with an 80-year-old, a living apparently in a hotel that is virtually a care home. So Sergeant Lamborn does two things. Uh, she asks her colleague to check if this man Haig has any criminal record. And she then goes up to the hotel herself just to have a, have a look around. And everything is confirmed that she feared this is a, a home for the elderly. Haig is quite out of place. There's, there's something very odd going on here. And when she gets back to the police station, uh, her colleague gives her his uh, Haig's criminal record, which is fairly extensive. He's uh, committed various crimes of fraud. He's been in prison at least once. And even that was rather intriguing. Uh, he was in prison for pretending uh, or putting himself up as a, a solicitor, uh, as an attorney. And um, he was dealing with the estates of uh, deceased estates and selling off at a bargain price uh, probate shares for, from the estates. And he said he couldn't make money fast enough. He said he couldn't get to the bank fast enough. It was all working so perfectly. But the only slip Hague had made 
was on the notepaper of these supposed solicitors to spell the name of the city wrong. It, it, it was Guildford, which is a rather beautiful city uh, in southern England. But he'd left the D out of Guildford. You know, it's a slip we can all make if we don't know the city. And that, of course, made clients suspicious. Well, what is this supposedly well-educated solicitor doing, misspelling the uh, name of his own um, city? So uh, the police at that stage uh, move in and uh, find he's acting as a fraud and he goes to prison. But it's while he's sitting in prison with that rather overworked mind of his that it comes to him that uh, if he's going to uh, really make any money, uh, it's going to have to be big time. Um, and if you're going to get murder anyone, you've got to get rid of a body. And uh, what about uh, um, what about putting them in acid and dissolving them? So he asks people, other fellow prisoners going out into the fields to work, to bring him back dead mice or whatever they can find, a few birds. And he experiments with sulfuric acid from the prison workshop. And to his uh, delight, it works. He knows he can do it. And this is really the, 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 the start of the whole idea. And so when he comes to uh, uh, Durand Deacon and any other victim, he knows exactly where he stands, still slightly getting the law wrong, because he feels at this stage that uh, if there is no body found after committing a, a murder, then he is safe from prosecution. He'd, he'd got that wrong. In fact, the courts, of course, had been faced with this problem before and had decided in case law, uh, British courts decided, as they have obviously in America, that um, uh, even if you have a body uh, using circumstantial evidence that points towards a murder, then that can be relied on. You don't need... Um, you don't actually need the, 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 the uh, body to be produced. Of course, it helps because a prosecution is very much more likely to get a conviction with a body, but uh, it's not 100% essential. And we will be right back. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, 
flat earth theory. And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. So he's in financial trouble. But once he's got this cash, he flourishes it, right? Uh, he, he flippantly tosses his, his rent money on the bed. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, he never know, quite knows where to limit himself, Haig. I think he's so relieved to have sold this jewellery for whatever it was. He certainly had 50 pounds in cash. Uh, that he goes back to the hotel and the next time... The cashier comes up. He said, oh, absolutely no problem. I think Mrs. Kirkdale was her name. Um, there, it, as he said, there it is on the bed, 50 quid, you know, 50, 50 pounds. Uh, take what you want, you know, rather than grand. So, in fact, uh, she uh, she not only takes the end, the rent he owes, but she, she's going to take the next two months too, you know. And he, he doesn't like that idea very much. He said, no, you know, take, take cash for... Um, what I owe you, but uh, a check will do, won't it, for the next two months? She says, no, it certainly will not. You know, we've had enough of all this. So she just goes on counting and takes all the money. But it certainly puts him back in heart and um, still gives him a bit of surplus cash that I think he hasn't produced. And uh, his um, girlfriend at the time, Barbara Stevens, we haven't mentioned her, but a lovely girl, half his age again, about 20 years old, noticed that uh, he's suddenly become much more optimistic. He's treating her to tea, afternoon tea down in the restaurant. He's saying, have what you want, you know, and we must start going out again. There's a, a, a huge change has, has gone on and uh, life is uh, suddenly looking up again for him. Right. So again, he goes to the police station. It's his idea. Um, he wants to personally report her disappearance. Uh, other murderers have, have made this mistake in history, believing that going to the police makes them less suspicious. And uh, of course, it uh, often has the opposite effect. Absolutely. Ra rather, a, rather a naive approach because... 
Of course, Haig wouldn't see himself as looking suspicious. They they would see he he would see other people seeing as as most did, as debonair, bright, a joker, uh, apparently well off because he turns up in a in, in a lovely car, but um, he accelerates the whole process by uh, not only letting them see him and the background, but of course. Uh, allowing the police to go back up to the hotel just to uh, just just to see what's going on up there and uh, the, the thing doesn't look right and a lot of this case of the uh, Duran Deacon case is thanks to Sergeant Lamborn um, in those early days which uh, I imagine female police officers were very much the minority then um, clocking this and and uh, getting the matter sorted. Uh, and it led to uh, the arrest. They came up, they interrogated or uh, asked Haig a lot of questions. And um, at first he resisted it all and said, no, he was being blackmailed and uh, what have you. But at last he confessed, it, 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 he'd had enough. And I think it shows Haig's sloppiness, actually, with this victim, that um, he is losing his touch. Anyway, he confesses to this. The police, of course, are rather pleased. A A few more slips start now. He's becoming careless, and as the chief examining policeman is out of the room for a moment, taking an urgent call, he turns to the other police officer and says, uh, Look, um, you know, if I ended up in Broadmoor, which was the leading and is the leading criminal asylum, uh, lunatic asylum, mental asylum, um, you know, what do you think? You know, how do they let you out in the end? And I think the police officer said, "Oh, possibly. You know, it's six years or so, you'll be there, and you may be out." And uh, Haig leaves it as that, but. The police officer quite rightly then tells his colleague, you know, who, who who then comes back. And of course, what's happening is that he's going into plan B, really. Yes, admit it. Make yourself sound as mad as possible, insane as possible, and uh, possibly have six years in Broadmoor, which is no fun itself, a large Victorian mental asylum down in Surrey, uh, England. And um, But, you know, that, that, that could be a lot worse. Anyway, they struggle on through this, and um, it, this is a few hours questioning, as you can imagine. They're, by the evening, they're tired. They've had a few cups of tea, and someone's brought in a hamburger or whatever they had <laughs> to bring in in those days, a sandwich probably. And he says, um, just casually, as they're uh, thinking about getting home, you know, getting some decent rest, he said, oh, oh by the way, there were others. And they say, well, uh, what's that, John? What do you mean? He said, well, um, I, I have uh, I have dealt with other people in the same way that I've dealt with Olive uh, Durand Deacon. So the notebooks come out again. And he then admits to murdering um, at least three other people, which is Donald McSwan, his first employer, and Donald's two parents. And what seems to have happened, they, of course, said, well, how have you done that? And he simply said, oh, in the same way. 
The only difference is that John Hake was then operating completely from central London. He had a basement, another pretty dreadful basement, like his workshop now, in the Gloucester Road in uh, central in central London, hidden away, whereby he could operate the same system, shoot or beat the uh, victim over the head. He didn't have a revolver in, the, in, in those earlier days. This was about two or three years before Olive's demise. Beat them over the head, kill them that way, and uh, dissolve them in sulfuric acid. The one big difference was that in the middle of this basement, as luck would have it, was a large grating and um, a drain. So what he did, instead of having to chuck remains out uh, in, in a yard, he could pour his victims in, in a form of sludge soup straight down the uh, drain. The drain fed into the River Thames and was lost straight away was washed away in the Thames. And that was completely foolproof. Even if any remains had remained in the sludge, no one would have spotted it in that huge river. And so for those three victims, he had committed the perfect murders. And uh, the plan was that he'd um, pick three victims who were well off, a bit sad, really, because the first victim was a very good friend of his. He lived with him up the road at Queensgate. Uh, this man had given him a job, Donald, in an amusement arcade. But John Haig knew that uh, Donald had two or three properties. He was well off. And so having got rid of the uh, body, he uh, started to forge documents over into his, uh, of the various properties owned by McSwan into his own name did it very successfully, there were shares and what have you. And uh, he then turned his eye to uh, Donald's parents who were also living in London, elderly. Uh, they were even easier to deal with. But knowing them as he did, he knew exactly how much they were worth, where their assets were, and what he would have to do to forge, forge the transfers a bit as he was doing in that uh, Guildford scenario with those probate shares. So he had good forgery skills, which uh, on this on this occasion um, bore fruit. So in volunteering this information about prior murders, was his goal to convince the police that adding more murders to his uh, resume might make him appear more insane. Exactly. He confessed to another two. And these were a very respectable couple, Dr. and Mrs. Henderson, who had a lovely house in uh, Ladbroke Square in central London, 22 Ladbroke Square. And he'd got to know them because they were selling the house. So this, is again, is pre-Olive and post the McSwans. And so he'd gone round there posing as an um, interested uh, per uh, purchaser. And they were asking, in this about 1946-47, £7,500, which actually in those days for a London house was, uh, you know, quite a lot of money. 
So Haig rolls into the house. He says, oh, this is nice. He said, this house, you know, is worth far more than £7,500. I, I, I'm going to offer you 10500 <laughs> And they sort of looked at him as if they'd uh, actually heard right. Again, classic Haig overcooking the whole thing. And um, <laughs> Mrs. Henderson's brother, on hearing this, said, uh, um, you know, if you meet a man like that, your best thing to do is run for it. And, of course, he, he was quite right. He had no idea that, you know, this was just a sort of fraud and a, leading to mo the most terrible things. But anyway, Haig never uh, uh, became quite close friends with them. You know, they, 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 he, of course, he never went on about the, he never continued with the house, but they became good social friends and they knew each other. They had parties together. He played the piano for them, which he was quite uh, talented at. And so the whole thing went from there. And um, I'm afraid the two Hendersons got the same treatment. But this time, Haig had moved to the Crawley workshop, the same one as for Olive Duran Deacon, and uh, he disposed of them there. He didn't even have to find a gun because Dr. Henderson, who'd fought in the war, Second World War, had an old service revolver and Haig stole this to eventually shoot Dr. Henderson and his wife the same day in separate occasions and deal with them exactly the same way, uh, dissolve them in sulfuric acid and tip them out in the yard outside the workshop. Wow. So the police have been investigating this case, of course. They're tracing his steps as he sold these various items, and they confront him with these receipts, this evidence. I think by this stage, Haig, having been in this questioning where he confessed one, two, three, four, so many murders, he was confessing anything. And um, while the evidence was helpful particularly as, as they hadn't got a body. Then the jewellery turning up, the, the, <laughs> the jeweller the jeweler was read Mr. Buller, who'd bought the jewellery, unsuspecting, and was reading his Sunday newspaper. And, um, of course, this was all over the front pages, but they'd taken photographs of the missing jewellery, and he said, oh, my God, <laughs> this, I've got all this jewellery. It's, it's in my safe. So he he uh, he got to the police pretty quickly. Um, the police got into the workshop without too much of a delay. Even then, it was not easy because they only knew about the main factory in Crawley and, and the business, you know, the legit business. But once they started talking to Edward Jones, the business partner, Edward mentioned this workshop over the other side of town. They said, well, we haven't heard of that before in Leopold Road. So they jumped into the car and raced over, bashed their, broke their way into it. And at that stage, they found uh, a receipt for the cleaning receipt for the uh, coat. They found the revolver. They found splashes of blood on the wall um, beyond the uh, desk on which Oliver collapsed after being shot. So that by this stage, they had all the evidence they wanted. And of course, they could put that as well to, uh, uh, to Haig, who, uh, you know, who, who wasn't denying it. The next stage, really, 
was to try to get some slightly better evidence of the victims themselves. And um, they brought down um, a uh, pathologist who painstakingly looked at uh, what was going on here and um, had the idea of going out into the yard just to see what he could find and uh, removed great boxes of earth from the yard, went through it meticulously. Uh, this was, I won't say unusual, but this, this would, you know, in these early days of forensic science, he took enormous care of what he was doing. And he found some obvious things and some less obvious things. Obviously, it was Mrs. Joran uh, Deacon's red plastic handbag that had not dissolved. Again, this was Haig now being really careless. Uh, he, they found a bone, a human bone, which actually in the end turned out to be one of Dr. Henderson's feet, nothing to do with uh, Olive. But he also found a couple of minute pea-sized gallstones in all those boxes of earth. And because of his training and because this man was really very expert, he recognised these minute pieces of whatever as human gallstones. And um, again, the, uh, the net closed even tighter on this. This is the pathologist, Dr. Keith Simpson. This was really one of his early, very famous cases. And it went on to have a very distinguished career as a, uh, patho as a forensic pathologist. One of the police found a penknife in Haig's car with bloodstains on it. This is something I've never quite understood. I think it was a yellow penknife. And um, with Haig saying that, trying to sound mad and saying, I slit the, my victim's throat and took blood from their neck, which I drank, trying to sound insane. Confronted with the penknife, I said, oh, no, that was nothing to do with it. I mean, he didn't suggest why there was blood on a penknife. Um, but anyway, there it is. It was a little bit of a contradiction. And they found the stirrup pump as well that they did for the for, for the sulfuric acid. So that was pretty straightforward. The part, of course, that was not straightforward was um, how to deal with Haig's issue of insanity. In this, in, in England, as I'm sure they do in America, we have uh, the uh, test then was known as the uh, McNaughton Rules which said for insanity, criminal insanity, you had to find a disease of the mind that led to a defect of reason, which meant you, you couldn't tell right from wrong. Right from wrong in the uh, legal sense, not, not the moral sense. And the problem here was the psychiatrist trying to find a disease of the mind. And all, all he could say was that Haig suffered from paranoia. I'm quite sure how he even came to that conclusion, but... Um, the, patholo the uh, psychiatrist couldn't say much about whether Haig knew right from wrong. Well, of course, I mean, I, I say of course, but I think the jury didn't need much convincing about whether he could tell right from wrong because he'd prepared everything so uh, meticulously. But um, paranoia is not a disease of the mind in that sense. And I thought it, I admire the judge here, who in, himself was 81 years old was uh, saying, look, I don't want an argument. I don't want to hear about whether this is a, a disease of the mind or not. Let's just say it was. 
I don't care. Say it was. You still got to decide, members of the jury, that uh, Mr. Haig didn't uh, couldn't distinguish right from wrong. Well, that didn't really hamper matters much because, in the end, the jury only took fifteen minutes to decide Haig was um, guilty and bring in a guilty verdict. So Haig didn't just stop with confessing to these five murders. He added three more people to the list, and, and his memory was foggier about the details of these other murders. He, he couldn't remember names, dates, etc. No, I think that was just Haig piling on the agony because the police could find no evidence of three other missing people. They looked at the missing person's list, etc., etc., and I thought you could imagine Haig sitting there in his saying in his cell, saying, "Well, I've told them about the blood, you know, I've told them about this." And that. Well, I think I'll add on a few victims. So, as you say, he mentioned another three. I think he he hardly knew their names. He was obviously making it all up, and um, he tried desperately to make it all sound convincing, but. Uh, we didn't, uh, you know, the, the court didn't really need much more than present pretty horrific list of uh, victims that they had already. As to the trial, I'll just say a word about that. I think this was an occasion that Haig really enjoyed. They say he sat there in the uh, dock, prisoner's dock, throughout the whole trial with the newspaper crossword on his knee and a, and a pen, you know, sort of thinking about that not paying much attention to what was going on. I'm sure that was all fate, to look mad and unconcerned. But he was represented by the most distinguished lawyers. He was uh, prosecuting was an attorney general, Sir Hartley Shawcross. These are not common, you know, well-known names nowadays. And defending um, Haig was Sir David Maxwell Fife. But the interesting thing about these two characters was they'd both been involved in the Nuremberg trials after the war, trying the Nazis. So here was old Haig sitting there enjoying all this, knowing that these two men had been involved in the prosecution of Goebbels, Hess, and uh, various other uh, Nazi big names. And uh, now they were turning their attention to to, to, to Haig, so this all bolstered his confidence. The other thing he'd uh, rather done, I think it just shows something about his ego, is that um, he'd taken his girlfriend, Barbara Stevens, a few days before the trial, before he was arrested, to Madame Tussauds, which, of course, he insisted on the infamous uh, Chamber of Horrors there, took her down there. And um, he, he said to Barbara, you know, Barbara, I wouldn't mind at all if I, I was here. She said, oh, John, don't say awful things like that. But you could see his mind was already working, that uh, he knew probably what would, the inevitable was going to happen. And uh, the idea of ending up in the Chamber of Horrors as one of Madame Tussauds' waxworks, uh, I think, ra- rather thrilled him. We will return in just a few moments. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, 
The desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. We are back again. Uh, speaking of the, the Nuremberg trials, the common defense for, for Nazis who stood trial uh, was that they were only following orders. Uh, from a higher power. And that's the stance that Haig took as well. He argued that he was not bound by the common laws of the unwashed masses, right? He, he said he took his orders directly from God. Absolutely. We haven't mentioned much about Haig's background, but uh, I'm sure you're absolutely right. He grew up in a Plymouth Brethren uh, household in, in northern England. And they were very strict Plymouth Brethren. Uh, the only book in the household was the Bible. Uh, and there was a 10-foot-high fence surrounding the house. They didn't allow him to bring his little school friends back. So this man was just brought up in isolation. They doted her. They loved him. And I think he probably loved them too. But... Um, the only thing they did allow Haig to do is he, he managed to get a, a choral scholarship to the local cathedral, Wakefield Cathedral, where he sang in the choir. He was obviously very musical. As I said, he played the piano beautifully. And in some ways, that, that, that was surprising that they let him out there because that was occupied most of his Sundays, early service at the cathedral, in the choir. And there, I think there were four services during the day which uh, Haig went to. But that certainly gave him a bit of an eye, a, an eye on the outside world. So he wasn't uh, certainly wasn't naive in that sense. But um, once back home, very, very isolated. But his parents stuck with him to the end. And even when they heard about his trial and the verdict, they said, we still love you, we still back you, and you'll, you'll always be the, uh, the first thing in our hearts. But you're quite right, Eric. Um, I don't know how much of this, again, was put on by Hay, because <laughs> as the judge said afterwards, you can't trust what this man says at all. But uh, he said his life was ruled by God, that God had pre preordained that, uh, if I was preordained, said John, to murder all these people, then it happened. You know, all I could do is sort of sit there, stand back as a, a as a spectator. There may be an element of truth in this because uh, he just seemed so aloof all his life, so unconcerned, with no empathy for his clients or or anybody else. So, you know, for, for his victims, he could become close friends with them. I think there is another element here while we're thinking about. Haig's personal life, and I think the chances were that he was homosexual. And the reason I say that is that his first victim, he, to whom he was very close, Donald McSwan, was homosexual and lived in a house with two other homosexuals who, who'd uh, received um, court convictions for this. And so that was the sort of background. And in fact, Haig lived with Donald McSwan 
for a time just up the road from the hotel until they were bombed out during the war. And I think at that point, Haig went into the hotel and um, I think um, Donald McSwan went back to his parents in South in um, in Pimlico, London. But I don't know if this explains anything or not, but Haig left, led a secret life. And it emerged that, um, in fact, after five years with Barbara Stevens, this very attractive girlfriend he had, there had been no sexual relationship between them at all. And she said that, she said, I imagine John was waiting, as it were, till I was 21, and then I hoped it would be marriage. I mean, she loved him. And, uh, of course, that was not to be, and she, she even went to visit him several times in prison after his conviction and, and stuck by him and was devastated by what, what had happened. I couldn't really believe that uh, this was the real John Haig. And it would be revealed that he had been married before to a woman named Beatrice Hamer. What is known about that relationship? We know very little. We know that the, the marriage had been a complete failure. And I don't think they'd lasted together more than a year, possibly less. They're, again, unsubstantiated, but there was some talk about them having a child whom, if it was um, if it was Haig's child, he had nothing to do with. He wasn't interested. And whether Beatrice had relationships with other men and had had a child, I don't think we know. But as you say, he was still married. Uh, he'd never gone through any form of divorce. Um, and um, he'd always promised uh, Barbara, Barbara Stevens, that, um, or she certainly imagined that once she became of age, as it were, 21 in those days, that uh, he would get divorced and that, that uh, he would marry her. But there was some, uh, I don't think it's much more than, you know, rumour that, in fact, he'd led, uh, that... Um, Haig had lived quite a fast life in, in his uh, youth, that he'd had girlfriends, but had reached some point in his life where, for some reason, he did a complete U-turn, decided women he didn't trust or like, and uh, from then on had lived this um, bleak bachelorhood. Um, I, I want to ask you more about this uh, vampire angle. Uh, obviously, newspapers had fun with that. He claimed that he tapped the bodies like a keg, basically, and, and drank a glass of blood after each murder. And, and no glass stained with blood was, was ever found at the scene of Mrs. Duran Deacon's murder. No evidence at all that it had ever happened, only his statement that he did it. He also told people he drank his own urine, and this is the kind of stuff that, that newspapers really had a field day with. <laughs> Sold a lot of newspapers. Um, yeah, of course, we couldn't prove it because we didn't have any bodies. So, you know, if we could have had a body, we could have seen if there were incisions in the neck. I think it was probably just uh, made up. He, he, he said he started seeing visions of Christ on, you know, crucified on trees and dripping blood, all very fanciful. And uh, 
that's exactly it. I think this was all made up, really, to sound uh, pretty mad. But um, that side of it, they couldn't prove, and I, I doubt if the jury, uh, I doubt if the jury paid much attention to that. <laughs> In an exchange with a cellmate, uh, while awaiting trial, I think his cellmate was like, "You know, you got to commit to this thing <laughs> uh, a little harder." Just drinking a, a glass of blood doesn't cut it. You, you got to be acting like a vampire. You got to be jumping around in the rafters. <laughs> and, and your urine drinking, uh, you have to be <laughs> more consistent with it. You have to do it more often. Yes. <laughs> I, I think he overcooked that because I think that had come sort of... There's one thing about this, actually, that at his arrest, he never mentioned the drinking blood episode. So um, th this all seems to have been cooked up, you know, in the weeks after the arrest. Uh, it was pointed out in his trial, well, Mr. Hague, you know, you've come up with all these fanciful stories, but you didn't mention this at the time of your arrest. You know, you mentioned all the victims and what have you. And I, I don't think there was, um, I don't think there was a quick answer to this. The urine seems to have appeared while he was in the condemned cell at Wandsworth Prison. So we should add that at the trial concluded by 15 minutes from the jury and everyone came back in, the judge donned his black cap as we did in those days before capital punishment was stopped in uh, England. It was, a, it was actually more like a black cloth and um, Haig thought this extremely amusing and said to someone after the trial um, that the judge looked like a sheep looking out from under a rhubarb leaf. Um, well, I don't know if he found how funny he found it at the time, but uh, that, that was rather sort of classic Haig. So he's condemned to death. That was by hanging then up to 1965 here. And uh, he is transferred at that stage to Wandsworth Prison in London, to the condemned suite, a bleak room. Uh, they tried to make it reasonably uh, comfortable in the sense that it had a window where you could see the trees beyond the prison walls, uh, a table, three chairs for two police officers and the condemned prisoner, so they could sit around, drink tea and try to pass the time of day. Two doors, one door not used, and the other door leading to a corridor with the uh, bathroom in it, a, a lavatory and a bathroom uh, and a shower. And that was it. Uh, appeals to the Home Secretary, who was uh, the government minister responsible for executions and uh, domestic order. That was refused. Uh, still trying the insanity ticket. And in fact, um, three psychiatrists, one from Head of Broadmoor, came up to look at him and they, they thought on the whole that he wasn't, uh, they, they didn't find he was insane. And so um, he was uh, duly executed. Um, before we say a word about that, you may wonder how um, Haig, who had no money, could afford all these expensive barristers. Well, what had happened is that, going back to your newspaper question, is that uh, the News of the World newspaper, which is now defunct, had offered to uh, pay for his defence and get the most expensive lawyers in return 
for getting his uh, inside story. But that really was quite helpful because um, the reporter who was put to this task uh, acted as a go-between between, between uh, uh, Haig in prison and his parents and, um, you know, it did help out a bit there. And in the end, it was decided the parents would not come down and visit him in the condemned cell. And one of the main reasons seems to be that uh, our smart, our bane, Haig had had to shift into prison clothes when he was condemned. And he didn't like that at all. You know, he felt uh, <laughs> it was not, he didn't want his parents to see him in prison clothes and uh, told them not to bother, which is probably just as well. It must have been very upsetting. So um, that, that was that chapter closed. But uh, Haig throughout this, these three weeks he was there in the condemned cell, which is the period they uh, fix was always in good humour, saw Barbara a couple of times uh, to say goodbye and uh, acted in a very straightforward way. But I think um, by this stage, I don't think he wanted to even appeal his case. He realised his number was up. He'd he'd had enough of it all. All he did do, going back to Madame Tussauds, because he was convinced to see this one through, was to say, look, Madame Tussauds can have my jacket, green jacket and my green tie to put on the uh, waxwork dummy of me in the Chamber of Horrors, which I would like to happen. And um, Madame Tussauds asked if they could come up on the afternoon before his execution to take a a death mask moulding, which, of course, you probably remember they did in the French Revolution, uh, Robespierre and, uh, and co., ended up with death masks made by Madame Tussauds on the spot, I think, the real Madame Tussauds. And this, for Haig, this involved three hours lying on his back, not even, even able to smile. And this was the afternoon before the morning after. And apparently he did all that in good humour. And so they were able to use the mask and his clothes to reproduce him I think he almost appeared next day. Of course, this was all huge news in the media. And um, I imagine, uh, did Madame Tussauds no harm at all? The, the other slip, the, the major mistake, though, made by the newspapers was the Daily Mirror in this country with these garish headlines about vampire sucks blood and vampire confesses to five, six murders or whatever it was which, of course, is in, entirely inappropriate because I, I know America has slightly different laws about this, but in this country, you just can't make any prejudged statements at all. They don't really like, the courts don't really like you even putting photographs up of the accused in case it prejudices the jury. I think probably quite rightly, too. In fact, it's uh, I think it's the same in America. If you think um, lawyers feel their client... Is, has received too much adverse publicity. They moved the site of the trial. I don't know how much you can do this in the States, but you can move it uh, you know, out of London to Oxford or to York or something like this, where the locals may not be quite so aware of what's gone on. But in Hayes' case, it was impossible because uh, he, was, um, uh, he was nationally known. But I think he was tried in the end down in... Uh, Lewis Crown Court rather than the Old Bailey. Uh, Haig at the end 
uh, was worried that he had gained too much weight. And he was concerned that the gallows wouldn't work properly on the day of his execution. So he actually requested an execution dress rehearsal, right? (laughs) I think probably the first time, if not the last time, that was ever requested. I think probably the governor never knew what was quite coming next from Haig. Yes, um, he was very concerned that his executioner should have a good look at him to see what sort of weight he was, so he could judge the appropriate length of the rope when he was uh, for the drop when he was finally executed. Uh, the procedure in this country at the time, in fact, was that uh, was all cared for because the executioner. Uh, Pierpoint was his name, would have a look into the condemned cell the evening before the execution. They're through the spy hole, so the uh, accused didn't know, the victim didn't know he was a, that was happening. To get an idea of the size, he'd know his weight, of course, so that was the important thing because he'd been weighed and measured, etc. And then the executioner with his assistant would go actually to the gallows which are inside the prison, and get it all set up, work out the drop. They would actually do it with a sandbag just to see if it all, everything, that the, the machinery, as it were, was working properly. The reason he was there the evening before is that over the centuries, executioners have got a reputation for getting completely drunk by the time they actually came to hang the uh, accused. And the... Uh, Authorities were getting pretty fed up with this and I said, look, in future, you will come in with your assistant by whatever, you know, seven o'clock the previous evenings, you'll, you'll have dinner here, you'll have a look at the uh, accused and you will go to bed here in a, in a well, I won't say a cell, but uh, in, in a room in the prison so that we don't have you drinking or whatever you want to do. And, uh, and that was the accepted uh, procedure then. But Pierpoint was very experienced and um, was our main execution. In fact, going back to the uh, our Nuremberg Nazi criminals, uh, Pierpoint had executed most of them in that post-war period. He, he went over to Nuremberg and uh, saw the execution through because, of course, uh, hanging somebody is, is technically quite a difficult thing to do. And... Um, Again, I don't want to go into too many details, but uh, you know the knot has to be put in the right place, and it has to be done quickly before the uh, before the victim panics and starts making everything very difficult. Pierpoint was so experienced and so proud of his procedure that in Haig's instant itself, between going in to get Haig from the condemned cell. Incidentally, he appeared through that second door I mentioned, which no one, which no one used. So I think that took it. Always takes the prisoner by surprise. He bound his hands behind his back, would then be marched through a short corridor to the scaffold, which was next door to the condemned cell, and then would have be shown the chalk mark where he would have to stand. A white cotton hood was put on the uh, head and the noose fixed around the neck. So you had to know exactly what you're doing. But uh, Pierpoint, the hangman, said on this occasion, this took 11 seconds only. 
to get from the condemned cell into the execution chamber and for the drop very, very quick. So the the um, victim uh, had little time really to uh, think about all this. And on some occasions it was done even quicker. Uh, Haig also confided to someone that he believed that being declared mad was, was a badge of honor. Uh, he thought history was, was filled with mad geniuses and yeah. he believed himself to be intellectually superior to others, right? Yes, I'm sure he did. He had a huge ego. I think I mentioned it in the book that um, he fancied himself so solving world problems that he, he wrote an address to the United Nations saying he'd found the answer to the world's problems. And it starts with a sort of wonderful cliche about, you know, unaccustomed as I am to public speaking. <laughs> you know, it was really like a schoolboy would do. Uh, it's the kind of thing we did do at school. You know, we wrote these sort of rather highfalutin speeches. Yes, a huge ego, egomaniac, which in a frightening sort of way, he nearly got away with. Had he stopped these murders? let's say after the first five, he, he would have got away with it. He got, And I think Duran Deacon was his big mistake. And the other mistake with her was, I'm not quite sure how he was going to become rich because all her money was tied up in assets, not liquid assets, into fixed assets, uh, into uh, trusts which I think her husband had laid out anticipating all this. So it wouldn't be just a matter of Haig setting to and you know uh, transitioning, uh, transferring her property to him. Uh, I, there just was, it wasn't there. She was well off. She was well looked after from the income from the trust. But I don't think she held the capital. What it did give him in the sad way is that he could uh, sell her jewellery, of course, as we've discussed, for ready cash, which got him over another hurdle. But he would have had to start thinking quite quickly again, not like the others who had houses and property, real estate. He would have uh, had to start thinking again quite quickly about what the next step was. I don't know if he'd chosen another victim from the hotel, but... um, uh, there we are. I, I, just while we're talking about the hotel, um, I think the judge must have been paying very good attention to all. He was very quick. He was 81 years old, but he was very quick and admired by the, the, the barristers with his uh, replies. He didn't miss a trick. But he didn't miss a trick about uh, Haig's lifestyle, this rather comfortable hotel. They would have discussed what the rent was, that it was for retired people. How old was the judge? 81. When did he retire? Two years later. Where did he go? He clocked into the same hotel. <laughs> uh, it, it sounded so tempting. And I, you know, I'm used to myself. I wonder if he even got uh, Haig's room or perhaps Mrs. Duran Deacon's room 115, which was one of the best rooms in the house. He, he certainly could have afforded it. But, um, it's a nice little epilogue to this rather sad saga that uh, uh, that's where our Judge Humphreys actually um, ended up 
ended his day. I believe he, he lived another four years in there. It's a comfortable hotel. I've stayed there. That was sort of part of my research. And um, rather bizarrely, actually, I took my wife up there on one of our wedding anniversaries and I asked for and got Haig's old room, which is, uh, <laughs> I think, on the fourth floor. I think it's 420. I can't remember. It's in the book. And I got it, uh, a small room. And this is where he planned, uh, certainly, Duran Deacon and uh, wrote these infamous shopping lists that we've still got, where he'd sort of put on a list, the sort of chit, you know, we all write out at home, must go to cleaners, uh, shopping, you know, groceries, da da. And, and then in the same list would be added um, industrial gloves, uh, rubber apron, boots, acid. Uh, as if, um, you know, this is the sort of thing you might pick up like your conflict. So it it, it it was a detached, odd sort of mind. You could say in a way, couldn't you, that, that he was insane, not enough for the law, but his lack of empathy and sympathy and his immorality, he was amoral. And how much, how much all this difference be made by his upbringing, it must have affected him. Although, as I said, his parents loved him and expressed their love for him. And he, in letters, right till his last day, uh, wrote them very affectionate letters. So uh, a very complicated character. Right. Yeah. Goodness. Well, well, this has been so fascinating. I, I appreciate you sharing some of the details of this case with us. Uh, I do want to point out to listeners that you have a website and your books are available on Amazon. Yeah, uh, certainly, uh, um, certainly on Amazon, they're a good price on that. It's a paperback, so uh, it's not too expensive, Eric. I'd be very delighted if they'd like, uh, uh, without wanting to push it. But there, we managed to get a good bunch of photographs for the book too, and it brings a lot of these characters to life. There's, <laughs> there's one photograph I particularly particularly treasure there, which is the cashier at the hotel, uh, the manager of the hotel, and uh, Constant Lane, you remember the old dear who went off to the police, and they're all arriving at court you know, on the day of the trial, and they, they all look like they're at some sort of office outing, they've all got broad grins on their faces, and uh, they look very happy, you know, look, it, it look like they're in for adventure. But... Um, it, it, you know, every picture tells a story, and uh, it does put some of the. It puts most of these characters in context. Yeah. So you, you've written a couple of other books, including one about an escape, a famous escape from Broadmoor. Would you mind giving us a little summary? Yes, Broadmoor is a uh, is an interesting place. It was built. Um, in Victorian days, in about 1863, when Queen Victoria, as it were, was the height of our powers and um, colonial Britain was expanding in every direction. We were becoming well off. And um, the Victorians, this is a contradiction in their character, but we think of them as rather aloof and um, very strict about morals and everything. But they certainly had a concern about people with mental problems and we'd had a place called Bedlam. You may be aware with the expression, you know, the whole place was Bedlam. Well, that was a, 
abbreviated Bethlehem Hospital in London for the insane, but they were they were treated like zoo animals. They were put in cages. Now, people came out at weekends to look at them, you know, and poke fun at them. And the Victorians said, well, this can't go on. We shall build, we're going to build a vast hospital called Broadmoor for the criminally insane. And virtually you could only get in there if you committed murder and were found insane at the same time. The Victorian buildings are still there. It's moving slightly uh, next door into modern premises at last. But a lot of our very famous criminals have ended up there. Um, I have written a book about it called Escape from Broadmoor. And it's about, for me, a local character called John Straffan, who lives where I do in Bath in the West Country, who committed a couple of murders in the city and was then arrested and was sent to Broadmoor as being insane. They thought he was too insane to stand trial. Uh, But then after a few months, six months only, he escaped, which was very unusual, and committed another another murder straight away, almost confirming, you know, they got it right the first time. Um, But they decided, uh, the courts in their wisdom, decided that he wasn't in fact insane after all, and put him in a normal prison where he stayed for the rest of his life for 57 years and became our longest-serving prisoner. He's dead now, but he he only died about 10 years ago or so. But he happened to be a local resident here, and that's what really started me writing as I was trawling through stuff, as you do, you know, and I, I remember Broadmoor had this list of their 10 most famous patients so we have people like the Cray brothers and uh, a few others who may be more localised. But halfway down there was John Straffan, and I thought, well, I've never heard of him. Who, who, who is he? So I looked him up, I googled him, and found that he'd been a resident of Bath, in fact, only about half a mile away from where I live. And when I walk into Bath uh, from my house, you know, I, I, I pass where he committed his first murder and where he lived with his family. So, um, you know, it was obviously a good subject to start with. And I thoroughly enjoyed doing it. I could do all the research locally. And certainly nothing had been written about him. We'd, we'd never heard anything through the media. So um, that, that was very enjoyable. Then came the acid bath murders and Hague. And then the um, third one uh, um, that I've written is about a character known as the uh, Black Panther who committed a uh, kidnap and sadly in the end the death of uh, a a young girl aged 17. But it was very prolonged with a long police investigation and um, all all ended badly but uh, was was a fascinating story and was young enough to an extent that the case was young enough for people to remember um, all, all the drama that passed that. So that is three books, and they follow a similar lines of the acid bath murders, and they've been fascinating to investigate. I'm sure, like America, we do have excellent central national archives here in South London where you can actually find um, accounts of these trials, indeed actually using council's papers. I don't know if it was in 
John Haig's case, it could have been, again, macabre, but we actually had a note from Pierpoint, the executioner, written out in his writing for how long the drop was to be. <laughs> so he'd gone in the previous evening, he'd made this sort of note, and I remember it very clearly. Uh, he'd written this in large, bold, red crayon on a piece of paper. I think it was something like seven, seven feet, two inches, which presumably he carried with himself to the gallows and made sure that was all set up properly. But th these are the, some of the things you can produce if, if, if when you do the research. I, what I've always enjoyed about true crime is that it is true. And you're often discussing with people like yourselves. You know, you come to a point, they say, oh my God, this actually happened. <laughs> you know, it's not like reading some complicated mystery or criminal um, uh, novel with a sort of clever ending that you didn't guess happened. A lot of it you could guess, but makes it much more interesting because you've got real characters here who actually lived and committed these terrible crimes, uh, but had a, had a character of their own and very often were loved by their family and, you know, had begun with normal lives. Uh, Straffan's case, for example, was local here in Bath, but um, he was uh, educationally backward, had a low IQ, but did his best to get jobs. But of course, he was always so slow. And there were obviously faults in his character. We, we've discussed Haig with that very strange beginning. Um, and Donald Nielsen, the uh, Black Panther, all of which were strange people in their way, but with a mixture of normal I think it's like anyone who entrusts us, often as movie stars or pop stars or uh, business people. They have a talent, maybe a negative talent in some cases, but the rest of their character is almost like you and me. You know, they go to school, they try to get jobs, sometimes they fail, their love relationships, you know, complicated love life. And uh, I think this, uh, as true character, I think that's what makes them interesting. If I could add there, Eric, um, if I may, if any of our listeners would like any more information, I do have a website which you may want to produce separately with a, 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 a copy of the front of the book, but it's um, it's Gordon Lowe, it's L-O-W-E author, gordonlowauthor.co.uk. And there is some more information about the books I've been talking about and a, a, a couple of vague photographs. But um, I would, of course, be pleased if you, visit, if, if you visited that. And if, if you have any further inquiries, indeed, about what we've been talking about now and John Haig, it gives um, a, a website there. I'd be only too pleased to answer any queries. Well, thank you again for your time. I appreciate yours, Eric. Again, I have been speaking to Gordon Lowe, author of The Acid Bath Murders, The Trials and Liquidations of John George Haig. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. <laughs>